Welcome to the Space Talk podcast. You're listening to our Space Talk. Every week on the Space Talk, we are joined by space experts and enthusiasts from across the globe to have fascinating conversations about all things space. This is a recording of our live show of season three, episode three, Space 2069, with acclaimed author and former BBC science correspondent and editor, Dr. David Whitehouse. We discuss his latest book, Space 2069, a mind-expanding tour of humanity's future in space over the next 50 years, the problems solved during Apollo and those that still require solutions, his predictions of an international moon base being set up, and what really makes an enthralling space science book. This space talk is also available to watch in wonderful Technicolor, along with all of season one and two on the Space Store YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash Space Store Live. Hey David, how are you doing? I'm fine, thanks. And you? Brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, now, David is a writer, journalist, broadcaster, and he's actually got more science broadcasts than anyone else uh, as a former BBC science correspondent. To add to that, he's also got an asteroid named after him. It's called Asteroid 4036 White House, if you want to look that up. And tonight we're talking about his latest book, Space 2069, which came out in summer of last year. How are you doing, David? I'm fine, thank you. Uh, welcome to my my study, which was my kids' playroom. If you look, <laughs> if you look behind, if you took those bookcases away, there are still balloons painted on the wall. Wow, <laughs> it's, it's gone. It's gone through a very nice transformation. Um, just a note through the audiences: if you guys have any questions for uh, David throughout our talk, make sure you use the chat function whether you're joining us on YouTube or Facebook, and I'm sure David will be extremely happy to answer all of your questions. Um, so David, so for, for those of the audience who don't know uh, you, do you want to give them a brief introduction as to your background and experiences? Well, I was uh, a child of Apollo. Uh, I was um, a kid when Armstrong and Aldrin landed on the moon and um, my dad didn't want me to stay up to watch it because the, the first footprint was something like three o'clock on a Monday morning <laughs> and um, there was no way I was going to go to bed uh, so I stayed up to watch that and I've never gotten over it it's I'm, I'm still I'm the type of person I've still got in the car I've got um, CD and a memory stick um, of the landing of Apollo 11 and when there's nothing on the radio or don't listen to music, I listen to the landing of Apollo 11. And I never get tired of it. It's just wow. rock. Um, so, uh, and, then, and then where I grew up, there was no such thing as being an astronomer. I mean, it was just nobody knew any astronomers. Yeah. Uh, but I joined the Birmingham Astronomical Society and I met astronomers and friends. Um, I, I, I did a degree in physics at Manchester University, then I went on to Jodrell Bank to do a PhD. Uh, then after that I went to the Mullard Space Science Laboratory of University College London. Uh, then um, I left that and I, I, while I was there I, I started doing a lot of writing and broadcasting. Uh, and I worked on that and then the BBC offered me a job as their science correspondent. Nice. But, um, they would, it was John Birch who had this idea that instead of choosing a reporter that one year, one month had done Princess Die and the next month had done local government and then <laughs> went on to science, they'd actually choose a scientist 
who would learn about journalism. Um, and that was great fun. In fact, I turned them down first and then they came back to me. So that was, um, that was fun. Um, and then I went on to be science editor of BBC News Online when the internet was being launched. And that was great fun. Um, but if you stay at the BBC too long, they drive you mad and you drive them mad. <laughs> so I then want, I'd, I'd written a, few, a couple of books while I was at the BBC and I wanted to write more books. And writing books is the most wonderful you know, job to have. It's, you, you're your own boss and you know, you, these books, they wouldn't exist. If you, you know, Space 2069, if I hadn't, as I shall explain, had the idea the previous year, there wouldn't be a book called Space 2069. So I'm, I enjoy writing and, uh, and do a lot of broadcasting and uh, that's that's it really that's great uh we'll talk, we'll talk more about uh being a bbc science correspondent later in the show but let's start off with space 2069 what was what was your main inspiration behind writing it like what, what was the trigger point like okay this book this idea you have needs to be turned into a book it's when the publisher comes to you and says we want another book from you david because, you know, it's, lots of people have great ideas for books, but um, it's when a publisher wants the book that matters. Um, mm -hmm. Very difficult to publishers to agree to books. So when a publisher says, we want a book, you, it's a strong author uh, who actually says, no, I don't want to write it. Well, I'd had a book during the Apollo 11 anniversary year, 2019. And the year before, the year before that, patient, um, said, are you going to write a book for the Apollo 50th anniversary? Yeah. I said, probably not, because loads of other people will be writing the same type of books. In fact, uh, loads of people actually wrote a book for the 40th anniversary in 2009 and, and regurgitated it for the 50th. Um, anyway, she, she, then, she then said, well, how many of the other people who were writing these books have met Every person who's gone, she said, how many of the people who've gone to the moon and walked on the moon have you met? And I said, well, all of them. And ah. she, said, um, she said, well, the others can't say that, write the book. And so I wrote <laughs> the inside story. I wrote it in a different way uh, because I, I, I don't want to write a book that everybody else has written. And mm. the book that everybody looks at is Andrew Chaikin's Man on the Moon, which is a great book, but it is 30 years old. So it's time for a different approach. So yeah. In books, you have sort of two, two, two sentences from the protagonist, from the astronaut, uh, and then two, two paragraphs from the writer saying what the astronaut said. And I thought, no, yeah. write it like a film. Yeah. Um, so I, I wrote it with long quotations from the astronauts because I thought they were there, they've done it. They're the astronauts, the politicians, the administrators, the mission controllers. Let them say. So um, I let them have their say and mm -hmm. made for people who described it as a thriller. It made it much more like a film um, and it made it move very quickly and it was very active and you were very inside the story. And um, it, it did extremely well and I was very pleased. Um, and then the publisher says, we'd like another book. Yeah. I thought, well, what, what, should, I, what should I do for this? We'd have the 50th anniversary of uh, Apollo 11. And I thought, well, 
Why don't I write a book about the 100th anniversary of Apollo 11, 2069? And what we've done between now, what we could do between now and 2069. And that appealed to me because I could have great fun with the narrative. So I could, you know, I could start now and look forward. I could write from the perspective of 2069 and look back. Or I could put myself at various points in between and write as though it was it was now it was uh, real time so i had great fun moving around between the narratives because um i don't want to sound pompous but when i write a book i like it to be different i don't want yeah. it to be like another book about the next 50 years of space i'm more mm -hmm. interested in in the narrative and the structure of the book and the timeline and how you work the stories and how you bring them out and how you tease the reader to keep them re reading because there's a saying in the publishing trade that if nobody wants to buy your book nothing will stop them um, <laughs> yeah uh, so so you have to play the game with the narrative to get the reader to continue because you mustn't bore the reader you must let the reader want to turn the page and when when you get to the end of a chapter um you want them not to say, oh, I'll finish that, I'll do something else. No, you want to think, what's the next chapter like? You know, what's going yeah. on? So you, so I'm very, very interested in the structure and the narrative and the way you write the books because um, the science in science books is easy. Everybody, it's just a matter of homework. You do your research, you talk to the right people, uh, you do a lot of reading. And so there's no excuse for not getting the science right. But of course, what makes a book a book is, is it readable? You know, is, is it an interesting read? And I'm very interested in that. So uh, Space 2069 appealed to me greatly because I could, as you see in the book, I start off at the 50th at the 100th anniversary, go straight yeah. in, you know, books. The first page of a book is important. You have to go straight into the action. And so the, the first page of the book is 2069 on Mars and on the moon. And then I sort of fill in the gaps before I then go back to uh, go back to um, the voyage to Mars. So it, it appealed to me greatly as a sort of uh, a different type of book to write, which which I I mean it drove me mad when I wrote it. I mean it was just absolutely you know you sort of the thing about writing books is that you start off with a, a reasonable idea, and then as you get into them, it all goes to pieces. You've got mm -hmm. so much research, you've got so much. Uh, I, so many ideas, so many directions, it sort of ends up in a bit of a mess. And it's only very quickly towards the end of the book that everything comes together, that you suddenly see the way the book has to be. And, and, you, and you reject a lot of stuff. You leave a lot of stuff out because it doesn't fit to the line of the book. But you can't see the shape of the book until, you know, you've gone through that process. Um, so that, that's... that's you know that's that's fascinating. I, I, I sometimes when I'm um, two thirds, three quarters of the way through the book, I'll sit down in my study, you know, mid afternoon, and I will write um, for twenty four, forty eight hours, nonstop, uh, because wow. you spend the first few few hours reviewing, reading. And then suddenly you hit the hit the zone, you hit the seam, and when you're in the seam, you don't want to stop, and you end up writing things 
you never planned to write, you never thought you would write, and you come back a day later and look at it and you thought, I didn't, I didn't anticipate writing about that or going down that direction or taking <laughs> that in. I had no idea. And that's when the best writing comes. That's when you're, I find that's, that's when it, and it, it's a wonderful process. Um, um, putting a book together, it drives you mad, uh, you know, perhaps it drives you crazy. But when you finally get a manuscript and you know that, sure, other people could write about Mars and the future of space, and people do, and they have many fine books, but nobody wrote that book. Only you wrote that book. Yeah. That's, that's what makes it, you know, very worthwhile. Yeah, no, that's, that's truly fascinating to hear that sometimes you, you write for 24 to 48 hours in, a, in, a, in one go. That's crazy. My kids used to say, when that happened with my previous books, when my kids were at home, they've grown up and left now. Um, my kids used to say, don't go near daddy, he's pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, let's, let's dive deeper into the narrative side of things, because I'm so interested to find out how you find the balance between the facts. Like, as you said, you have to do your homework. You can't change the facts. You can't change the dates. You can't change what has happened. And then there's this fine balance between making the story interesting and predicting what's going to happen in the next 50 years. So how do you, how do you marry all of those things together into uh, into an exciting story. Well, nobody's going to tell me I'm wrong eventually because you know, I, I will not be around. People watching this may well be, but I won't be around in 2069, although I hope I will be. Um, so nobody's going to tell me I'm wrong. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a question of finding where the stories are. Um, so the first part of the book, the story is 2069, celebrating a hundred years yeah. uh, and who and the first woman on the moon um is, is is elderly but celebrating with this and there's a big celebration um with the lunar base at shackleton crater and the base on mars at um uh, wherever you want to put it the valley of the mariners or uh citadalia planitia um so and i also um talked about the mirrors on the moon which were used to illuminate these dark craters being turned to to shine a light on the birth site of neil armstrong uh, and then turning towards mars to shine a light towards mars and and also contrast the um the people living on the moon who are only a couple of days away from coming back to earth with the um exiles on mars who are, you know, Mars, the thing I found out, realized uh, about, about when I read this book is that Mar Mars is not just go to the moon and carry on a bit. Mars is fundamentally different. It's fundamentally so far away that everything is changed. I mean, once you get to Mars, we know about the surface, we know about the rocks, the temperature, the pressure, the gases, the atmosphere, we know about the weather, you know, all this stuff is known. So once you're living, once you're there, it's engineering. Um, getting to getting to Mars is a major function of the book, and I had great fun with the with uh, the voyages. 
Um, but the, once you're there, it's the psychology that interests me, the isolation. And I wrote about people who had gone to Mars who could not face the return voyage back home and who had resigned themselves to die. So that was the sort of first bit. And, and over the next 50 years, you know, for human exploration, it's going to be the moon and Mars. We're not going to go any, anywhere else than that. And I put the, um, and please, Joe Biden is keeping up with the Artemis program, and we're still going to the moon in a couple of years' time. I put the moon base being built in the 2030s, late 2020s, early 2030s, and I put the first voyage to Mars in 2039, 40, 41, 42, round about that time. Still well within my 2069, and I had great fun with, um, I won't give too much away, but the first voyage didn't go well. Uh, and I just sort of drew out some lessons from that. Um, and then at the end, you know, uh, we're back on Mars, you know, exploring Mars. Uh, and a friend of mine, actually, I think it was Nick Booth, the one that you had, uh, my friend, the writer you had on a few weeks ago. He said, I bet you can't get um, a line from, from the song that everybody uses about Mars, which is Life on Mars. David Bowie, you know, you have to, it's, it's, it's in the rules. If you do anything about Mars, you have to have David Bowie, right? Yeah. It used to be Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds, you know, uh, but, but it's always been David Bowie. And he said, can you get a line from David Bowie in the book? And if you read the last, last sentence, that's it. That's the line from Life on Mars. So I had great fun. Um, the book's divided into the moon, Mars, and the other things. Um, but in terms of human progress, um, we're not going to get further than Mars in the next 50 years. Indeed, I, I sort of had this scene where people on Mars look further, further out to the asteroid belt and the moons of Jupiter beyond. And I could not see in the next 50 years, in the next 100 years, we'd ever go there. Mm -hmm. But then artificial intelligence emissaries there, and they were told yeah. to to swim in the seas of Titan, but um, or jump the cliffs of um, you know that moon of uh, that moon with the uh, Rupes, the giant cliffs, or um, dive into the tiger stripes of Enceladus. You know, all these things will be done by artificial intelligences. Very yeah. clever. Uh, humans won't do it because of the time scales and the radiation. And I thought that the next thing that humans might want to do after Mars is actually go to the stars. Um, so I had that I'm, I'm not a great fan I didn't I put in a critique in the book of asteroid mining because I think that's all hype that's not going to mm -hmm. happen in 50 years if you want to lose money put it into asteroid mining at the moment you're bound to lose money um, so that you know that that sort of was the sort of broad scope of it humans to the moon humans to Mars and how Mars would change us and how the Martian colony would relate to the Earth colony, because uh, over the next 50 years, you will get people born in space, on the moon, on Mars, who um, perhaps don't have the same allegiance to Earth that we do. And start of a process whereby humans will naturally regard somewhere else as their home. Mm -hmm. That fascinated me about Mars. You know, when uh, people get to Mars, how it how it had affected their view of of us back here 
and so I, I tried to make a story out of it and and put that together um, for the book yeah that's it's it's super interesting we're already talking about that because in my program notes um i took out a, a short extract from from the book which i was super interested in talking about and the extract goes the people it's talking about the people who um are on mars now the astronauts who are on mars that they call themselves martians even though they were born on earth and it was earth they would eventually return to and even though they could never really feel at home again back on earth um, after their time on an alien planet uh, and it's super interesting we're already talking about that but why why do you think why do you think an astronaut would struggle to come back to earth um, when they were born here first of all there's the rigors of the voyage um, the problem with exploring Mars and getting to Mars is, is not so much the technology, mm -hmm. it is the human response to the voyage, to staying in space for so long. My first, I don't want to give too much away about the book, but the first mission um, did not have artificial gravity. Uh, and that, and it was a flyby, it wasn't a landing. Because if you take the lessons from the astronauts on the space station, and remember, they are uh, protected by the Earth's magnetic field. Yeah. They're not in deep space. Before we go to Mars, there have to be Mars um, simulation missions at the Lunar Gateway. Um, it, it's the it's the way it's the human effect on the body of going to Mars. The effect on the body and the mind. And if you read, say, the biography of Scott Kelly, he spent a year in space as part of the Kelly brothers' experiment. He took he went to extraordinary pain and problems when he came back. Uh, it's harrowing and mm. the more there was while I was writing this book the most comprehensive study of human adaptation to base uh, space came out and it's horrific reading we don't do very well adapting to space it slowly kills us um, and particularly if you go to Mars um, without gravity assist without a gravitational field an artificial gravity field um, when you arrive, you would feel like some of the astronauts do on the space station when they've been there for months. They don't quite feel on the ball, mm -hmm. somehow not there. And if you're asking somebody to go to Mars and then land on the surface, they have to feel on the ball. So my first mission was a Apollo 8, go round, explore the voyage. And uh, as I say, things go wrong. Um, yeah. And so there is sort of, a, if you get, when you get to Mars, you, you're there for a long time. Unless we have better propulsion systems in the future, when we can get to Mars in months and get back in months, which would change everything. That would change yeah. absolutely everything because you wouldn't have to have such closed life support systems and, and all that business. You could take sandwiches and throw away the wrappers. You know? <laughs> um, but but if, you, if you're that isolated, that reliant on technology to live, um, and you've got this very difficult voyage to get back home for months and months and months. Um, I just thought that that would, on some people who, if they stayed one or two terms on Mars and didn't yeah. come back at the next um, um, launch window, I just thought there would be some people who would regard it as their home and would, um, would want to stay there. 
it's too much to come home and their allegiance will be to Mars. And I have this scene where there are sealed graves on Mars where people mm -hmm. are. Um, and it struck me that that would be the start of a Martian mentality. Um, that people who got there would would not be able to face the voyage of coming home and, and Earth's gravity again. And particularly perhaps not be able to face the fame of being able to come back. So it, it struck me that there would come a time when people stayed on Mars, and so the first one would be a mission, it would be there for a, you know, a while, it would come back. And so would the subsequent missions. But there would come a time when um, you know, people would stay on Mars while missions came and went. And that would be a, a, a borderline for me as to Mars as something more independent from Earth. Yeah, because Mars as a planet is not another Earth. You know, mm. It's Mars, it's not Earth. If you look yeah. at Mars and say, that looks like a bit like Earth, or this is an Earth-like feature, well, in a certain sense, yes, but it's not. It's a Mars-like feature. Mars is Mars. Uh, and it's a yeah. very different type of world in many respects. And the human response to that, I thought, would, would be very interesting when, you know, somebody would say it's, you know, you've been on Mars now for four years, six years, um, you're booked on a voyage home, which is going to take you the best part of a year. Um, and somebody says, well, I'll stay here. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. It struck me as, as being very, in, uh, as a very interesting sort of line in exploration. Yeah. Rather, rather like, I suppose, in a slightly different way, when people started to stay at the South Pole over winter, it changed something, you know, when people started to do that. Yeah, no, that, that's so interesting. And it's, I think this is, this is really something we haven't talked about on Space to Alive before. We've talked about the engineering, we've talked about the physics of how, how we're going to get to Mars. Um, we briefly went into the psychological impact of the voyage to Mars uh, when we were speaking with Matt and Jamie from the Interplanetary Podcast um, almost a year ago now, but we never dived so deep into actually realizing that people might not want to come back, and that's so interesting. Um, and just for new people in the audience joining us, uh, welcome to Space to Live. We've, we've been joined today by Dr. David Whitehouse, and we're talking about his latest book, uh, space 2069. Um, well, moving on swiftly, um, we spoke a little bit about the research you had to do um, in terms of your homework. So what did you learn um, when, when you were writing the book that, kind of, that might have surprised you? Well, the interesting thing about putting together a book like this is that um, it's not just space. Um, sense that so you understand the history of Mars missions and missions to the moon you understand the the plans that were proposed and the plans that failed uh, you understand the latest science from these places you understand what people think you could do on a moon base or on a Mars base but then you have to look around and um, you see there are and you have to start writing, writing in in a purer sense um, uh, because there are science books and there are science writers who are all about slapping the information on the page and I can't stand it you know, it drives me to the wall 
Um, yeah. It's for, for me, it's the process of writing that's making an interesting read. And for that, you need to um, experience great writing. You know, we all we all learn by copying great writers and doing and learning our own style. So, mm. um, uh, you know, I read I read a lot of people who had nothing to do with Mars. I read a lot of the the, the science fiction stories, particularly yeah. the science fiction stories when we didn't know much about Mars from the 1950s and early 60s. And there's some yeah. fascinating stories about uh, people living on Mars, fascinating stories about the culture of Mars, about the creatures that could live on Mars, the abandoned civilizations people have found on Mars. There's a wonderful story about driving a tractor up, um, up um, Olympus Mons, the mm -hmm. large volcano. Uh, driving a tractor along the Valley of the Mariners, in order to get pictures in your mind and ideas in your mind. Um, and there's one quote in the, in the from uh, um, Shelley, I think it is, where, where um, he talks about exiles, exiles of the mind. And and that sort of struck me as, you know, it's, it's a paradise, but it's a paradise of exiles. Um, so... It's, I think, and also you have to. I, I read a lot of poetry because they are they are mental images condensed into into stanzas, mm. and you pick out a feeling or a theme or a, a phrase, a single phrase that sparks you off. I'll give you an example. The yeah. current book I'm writing uh, is about the universe. And there's a phrase in one of Coleridge's poems which he talks about um, the tragedy of ruined power. And that to me is entropy. That's, that's the way the universe is going to wind itself down. And all the power of stars and gravity uh, and galaxies and all this light when it's switched off and everything turns into a, a mist of lukewarm particles. The power is still there but it's it's dispersed in a different form. The power has been ruined. Mm -hmm. um, so I find that for a writer, you've got to put a certain percentage of your time to read good writing in order to improve your craft, yeah. improve your vocabulary. Because there, um, that's, why, that's why I tend to speed read science books. I read a lot of science books, um, most of which I'm you know, some of which are absolutely fabulous, most of which I'm not keen on, but I read them to see how people put them together. Um, <laughs> but there are very few authors. Carl Sagan was one of them, where you put the book down and you think, I wish, I wish I'd said that. That's a brilliant way to say it. Whereas if you read um, good literature, I mean, I would recommend to anybody studying science communication and science writing, the first thing I would give them is Steinbeck, um, is um, Conrad, is Hemingway, because you frequently put these books down and think, that's a, that's a fabulous sentence. That is a yeah. sentence. That is, that is a paragraph that changes the whole book. And so you have to learn that, those, um, those basics and try and apply them to the science. And that's what makes a really, what I think makes a really good read and a good science book. It's, it's the way you've worked on the structure 
and the way you've tried tried to um, put it, somebody somebody wrote a review of that Space Twenty Six Nine and said it had the right mix of drama, fact, and poetry. And I thought, yeah, okay, that's 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 nice. As I say, I'm yeah. sure we can all read them. We read books, and all the facts are there, mm-hmm. and it's in the right order. But does it does it spark you? Do you actually want to come back to the book um, for itself? Yeah. Uh, and does does it excite you? That that's that's the thing which really interests me. Um, as I said, because the 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 the, 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 the you know the, the topography of Mars and the history of Mars and the geology of Mars, fine, we all know about that. Um, and and although writers should actually put it, put something in their book which you cannot find on the internet frequently because I, um, it's it's the way you put it together in terms of story. I said I should emphasize that. Mm-hmm. If you have a book, if you read a book, and all the facts in that book and all the stories in that book, you can find with a Google search, and they've just been put together in an interesting way, then that's not a good book. Yeah. You actually, it's actually, you should find things which are not on the internet to put in the book. Um, and that's great but, fun. And that's why it drives you completely up the wall. It, it, totally up the wall. Um, but but, but, isn't, but isn't everything on the internet? <laughs> no. In fact, um, no, 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 it isn't. That's why, that's why if you're right, if you're, that's why you have to talk to people. Yeah. Because people will tell you things in, in um, some people will tell you things that you you know is not on the internet, and they uh, you know, and so you have to talk to people. You have to, when it's possible, put yourself in situations and write about your response. You have to go to places like mm-hmm. Journey to the Centre of the Earth. I went down one of the deepest mines in Europe, and right at the bottom of the mine, I got on my hands and knees and I put my hands in the dirt, in the, in the dust, and thought there's nothing now between me and the centre of the earth. Mm-hmm. I wrote, I wrote a, sort of, a few sketches, which I wouldn't have wrote had I not put myself in that position. You know, so you have to talk to people, you have to put yourself and go to places to get a response to write. Um, and also you have to, you know, if a book has a historical, historical narrative, then Go to go to a library, you know. Not in, I mean, modern books are all on the internet, but um, you know you can find some fascinating stuff, you know, in you know in the Bodleian or in libraries in London, in the British Library. British Library is wonderful for doing mm-hmm. research, and, and one of these days I'm going to actually spend several years writing a book just so I can spend. Yeah, a lot of time in the British life. <laughs> That's great. We've actually got a question in uh, from the audience. Um, and they're wondering what you think the dynamic between Earthlings, if we may call them, and Martians will be like communicating with the eight minute delay. I don't think it'll make much difference, really. Um, sure, it, sure. I think that on the outward, ba- outward bound voyage, That'll start. That'll start winding up the psychology, because you'll initially start off, and there's hardly any delay, and you have conversations. 
then slowly this delay will wind in and and you, you'll have you know um it'll be much more frustration frustrating but i think people obviously will adapt to that and they, i don't think eight minutes is, is 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 that much but um i suppose it is part of the isolation you know i mean the the, the thing which exploring mars the thing which everything hammers into you is how isolated you are as i said it's not like going to the moon and carrying on a bit further like the crusades you know um when uh, the english went to the crusades the uh, instruction was go to italy and carry on yeah <laughs> that's easy yeah this is not going to the moon and carry on it's really very different um so yes, I mean, there are, I suppose there are loads of things to be write, written about the relationship between Earthlings and Martians. Yeah, just just on that note, um, and the fact that if, if, if you're a Martian and you're there, you've been there for a long time, and presumably it's you have been chosen to go to Mars mm -hmm. out, out of... I presume thousands of people, or hundreds of thousands of people, uh, who would have wanted to go and applied and gone through a presumably rigorous application process of some kind, um, of, of, of some sort in the next 10, 15 years. And you're now there, you're, you're a Martian on Mars, and you have this eight minute delay of instructions coming back to you. But what, what about if you just don't want to listen anymore? Well, look at the uh, look at the um, history of space flight. Look at the Skylab crew that mutinied. Uh, there was an mm -hmm. Apollo crew that, that mutinied as well, and none of them ever flew again because they just got they just got so fed up with the pressure and the timeline coming at in them from mission control. And and you can you see in such a small community, I suppose you can see how things would be exaggerated and amplified. Mm -hmm. It would depend more on personalities. Um, I did a little bit in the book about Mars simulation missions, which in general have not gone well. I mean, there was one where some poor lady uh, in a Russian um, duration simulation of a mission to Mars had to lock herself in a room, get away from the men. Um, and, and there are all sorts of tales of how it does not go well. Well, of course, as you said, people would be chosen. And mm -hmm. a great deal of... Um, um, care over the first people who landed on Mars in the 2040s but 30 or 40 years later that would you know there would be there would be different rules different approach as as we got better at it and you know you can you can imagine a sort of curmudgeon frontier mentality that what do those people on earth know they're not living here you know yeah um, and you can, you can go along that that avenue and think about that um you know, you read science fiction, and science writers should read a lot of science fiction. It really is very illuminating and, and gives you so many ideas. You know, a lot of science fiction has Mars colonies fighting for their independence. Well, that would be a stupid thing to do in the next 50 years or the next 100 years, but who knows, you know, there might come a point when they could be self-sufficient. Yeah. Um, I don't know when that would be. Elon mm -hmm. Musk probably thinks it's a lot sooner than I do. Uh, but, uh, but you know, th these are these are fascinating, fascinating questions, um, which which we can you know think about and 
and look forward to. And I got the chance to write about some of these things in, in that book. Yeah. Well, what were some of the challenges you faced when you were writing Space 2069? The time. Because... Um, the pressure. The pressure, because um, I started writing it... When did I start writing it? I started writing it about October 2019. Um, uh, for delivery, February, March 2020. Which is basically about six months. Yeah. Um, which is far too short, really. Um, um, but since I since I, I I I did it that way because actually I've lived the book all through my life. You know, all through my life, I've been reading about Mars and trips to Mars and the Moon base and everything. So I had a lot of heritage and background. I already knew. So yeah. it was a question of working out the structure of the book because a lot of the I didn't have to do much research into the you know. The constellation program or the initiatives that uh, um, NASA has had over the various years and failed about going back to the moon and the personalities involved. So that that gave me a sort of head start, and I had loads of loads of notes and loads of references, you know, wanting to be pulled together. Um, but there is a there is a certain pressure. I've never had a manuscript, and most writers I think like this that when you finished it, uh, that you don't want to give to the publisher. You want to hold on to it and say, can I have it for another year, please? Yeah. Because you want to polish it. You want to yeah. go over it. And it's not difficult to start a book, but it is very difficult, you know, your baby. It's very difficult to stop and say, right, the book is done. Yeah. There is the book. Um, and you have to go through that. And, and, what, and there's an unwritten rule which happens to everybody. It drives people crazy is that as soon as you hand over the manuscript, somebody discovers something or somebody does something that changes it. And you want to put that in the manuscript. And then somebody makes a decision which would have changed. What, so, you want to, so you actually have to realise that although you can fiddle with it during the editing process and get it together, getting together that respect, yeah. there comes a time where there can be a fabulous news story or discovery and you can't put it in the book until the next edition. Mm -hmm. and, and that's frustrating, but there's nothing you can do about it. The book is the book up to the time it's, 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 um, it's, it's solidified and that's it. And that's what you've got to see. You know, you've got to regard it as that's the book. And if something happens afterwards, then that's another book perhaps, you see. So, um, you know, writing, it's a process which drives you mad. You know, absolutely, it's obsessive. You, you've got you've got it on your mind. You're always thinking about angles and stories. You're always um, reading or watching things for somebody to say something or something to happen, which you think, yeah, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. And and but and and that's that's fascinating the way things get picked up and put in the book, but. As I say, you then have to say that is it, you know, and that's yeah. that's tough, you know, when you've you've lived with this book for a, a year or so, at least. Yeah. You know. I mean, actually, the first book I ever wrote was called. Hello, the first book I wrote was called um, the Moon of Biography, and it was just after ice had been discovered on the moon. I've always wanted to write a book on the moon, and yeah. I had a year to write it, and. 
I made every mistake possible. I thought I'd spend six months researching the book and six months writing it. It seemed logical, you know. Uh, but then when I came to write it, I realized that half the research I'd done I didn't need and half the research I needed I hadn't done because it's only in the process of actually writing the book together you see what you need. So it's ever since then I've started writing from day one and done the research alongside. Um, uh, I think writing, writing books is, is, is fabulous. It's a privilege. Um, but if it's going to be a good book, you have to suffer a bit. You have to get twitchy and irritable. And you have to sort of want to look for the angle, want to, want to draw esoteric things into the book. Um, and then you want to protect the time where you're trying to write the thing. Um, it's, 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 I think, something that more people who write about space and astronomy should actually get into because there are lots of books which I think are nice books, but they're not well-written books, you know. And I've got an idea that if you don't, if you don't, um, if a book doesn't strike you by page 25, throw it away. Life's too short. There was only one exception to that book, that rule, and that was Stephen Hawking's A Brief History of Time. And I thought this has sold so many millions. I'm going to read it. I'm going to... I had to force my eyelids open after about page 20 or 30. And I gave up at page 132. You know, it was a dire book to read. It was really hard because it was so bad. But it sold not because of just the narrative. It's sold because of the strength of character and the resolution of the person who wrote it. And that's another factor in book. books don't always sell. You know, books don't always sell if they're brilliantly written. Um, how many times have you read a bestseller and thought, well, that's, what's that about? Uh, books have all sorts of flavours and attributes. And sometimes books which sell are not the best books. Mm -hmm. um, well, talking, talking about other books, um, your, one of your previous books, Apollo 11, The Inside Story, you say is um was kind of the prequel to space 2069 uh, do you think there is a sequel for space 2069 well there could be i suppose you could look um you could do what arthur c clark used to say he used to say um i'm going to be totally wrong over the next hundred years but i'm going to be right in the next ten thousand years you could actually write space 2690 you know, and that would be a, a great work of fiction because, but, you know, who of us wouldn't like to know where we would be here, where we'd be in the year um, 20,000? You know, would, would we be at the stars? Would we have artificial intelligence? How much of ourselves would we understand? But that's not a book at the moment. When I wrote 2069, I frankly said I've had enough of planets. So I'd written the moon. <laughs> I'd written The Sun, admittedly, um, and I'd written Galileo and Astronauts and the book about the Earth and Apollo and this, and they're all, they're all the solar system. So yeah. my next book is not about the solar system. Um, I wanted to do something different. 
And there are so many interesting things you could do that um, at the moment I'm I'm fed up of the solar system, you know. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> I want I want something. I want to do write something else. Um, but you know, you could you could think about writing a sequel, or somebody else could. You know, I mean, 2069. Do you realise it? 26. It was in 2063, I think I'm right, when Zephram Cochrane developed warp drive in the Star Trek timeline. Okay. Not sure. I'm not that much of a Star Trek fan. In a different, in a different universe, a different timeline. By 2069, yeah. we'd have warp drive and we'd go into the stars. Yeah. <laughs> There's a different route people could take for, yeah. for, for looking into the future. But mm -hmm. moment, I'm. That's not. That's not. I'm not writing a sequel to a sequel. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting. That's so interesting. Um, well, if. You guys are joining us on Space Tour Live. Remember, you can grab your copy of Space 2069 on the Space Tour shop um, and go get your copy, have a read. I've started reading it and I'm thoroughly already enjoying it. Um, and it was probably going to be one of the books, one of the first books I finish in a long time because the previous few I've read, <laughs> I just haven't managed to finish them for various reasons. Oh, thank you. Yes, that's good. Yes. Yeah. Finishing a book is a, you know, is a, it's a compliment, isn't it? It is. It is. Yeah, it is. If if book doesn't strike you by tw page twenty or thirty, you know, give up. Go and find something else. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, just a note to the audience: if you guys have any questions for David, please send them through. Um, it's been an absolute amazing, amazing, amazing. It's been absolutely amazing talking to you today. Like, um, and we were speaking offline beforehand. And I said, I'm not going to tell you any of my questions because let's save the best for when we're live. And we're, always, we're going to end up talking about something that we haven't even planned to talk about. And that's exactly what has happened. Uh, but there's, there's a question here, which is, what is it? Um, um, about going to Mars. Uh, well, there's one here. What is your favorite space theme books? Ooh. Oh, yeah. What is your favourite space theme book? I get myself into a bit of bother because there are some books and, um, which I think are absolutely awful and they're books you will know and there are some books which um, are absolutely brilliant which you, you, you may not know or you may know. Mm -hmm. But um, let me think. I think Carl Sagan was a wonderful writer and I think a young science writer could do a little better than read Carl Sagan's books because he has a style and a craft and I don't know if you know about Carl Sagan but a lot of his writing technique was based around marijuana he would um, relax and, and, and take marijuana and somehow that would ease the wheels well it worked for the Beatles and it worked for Carl Sagan but, but in it he found he found found a, a way of writing which is fascinating and which people you know you should people who want to learn to write should um, should look at and study. It's it's it yeah, it's how can I put it? There are so many people who try to write like Carl Sagan, but don't do it. 
uh, in the sense that it's easy to fall into the cliché um, and not the essence of what he's writing, you know. Um, I've, I've, read, I've read, you know, books where people talk about, you know, the mystery of space, how it's like, you know, a deep feeling that you cannot put your finger on as you approach the deepest of mysteries of the universe. How, like falling, you know, how that's parody. That is a parody of, of Carl Sagan's writing. You have to understand, uh, you have to get more into it to realize that he was very good at linking. And, and there are some books which actually, I just did to get on with. Um, Shall I, shall I name a few names? Um, I don't know. I didn't like Astrophysics in a Hurry by Neil deGrasse Tyson. I thought it was skimpy. I thought it was shallow. And I thought it was too short. Even though it was meant for a general audience, I thought it was too derivative. I don't like Machu Kaku's books because they don't go anywhere. They're... They're short narratives bound together um, that have no, in my mind, no great intellectual depths. I don't like some of the books that astronomers write about the future because they're not well researched. Um, um, so, you know, there are some books I, I really like. I like Sean Carroll's books. I think they are, they are intellectually very, very deep and very interesting. Um, so there you go. That's probably made me unpopular in certain quarters, but uh, you know we all have our likes and dislikes of, of, of certain books. But um, but we all have our our own um, sort of proclivities. You know we all like certain things. We don't like certain things. One thing I don't like is a book that is shallow. I think that. Uh, you read so many books, and the level of research in these books is the equivalent of a new scientist article. And, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a collection of new scientist articles strung together and called research, and not very well yeah. as a narrative. I think book, good books actually need something more than that. Um, yeah. Uh, that, that, you know, that's, that's what I think. Um, We've got... We've got another really interesting question in. And if you were to have Space 2069 made into a film, which director, dead or alive, do you think would do it justice? Well, I admire Christopher Nolan's films, but I admire them more than I love them. Mm -hmm. you know, Interstellar was a fascinating film, but it was a bit of a waste of time with all the ecology nonsense. <laughs> you know, the Earth is dying and um, we've got to go... Now, we've got to go and find another world somewhere on the other side of the universe through a black hole. You know, I thought the whole ecology of the other day, I thought that was done to that. Was done to, that was a cliche. I, I would have chopped all that out, you know, yeah. and put it as a proper, uh, a different type of film. But he certainly does do very interesting films. Yeah. Uh, who would make a film? <laughs> I don't know, I'll tell you my favourite science fiction films, you know, I like um, John Borman um, impressed me a great deal, a great deal with Sardis, which is a fantasy film when I was young. Uh, 2001, of course, I went to see yeah. 
a kid. And I was totally blown away. It was just amazing. And um, I'm a nerd as far as closing cams, you know, closing cams of the third kind. Do you know, I've got a disc which has got three cuts of close encounters and I've okay. watched all of them uh, you know from time to time looking at the differences between them now how nerdish is that <laughs> this scene is different from that scene because it's a really it's a really interesting film um so I don't know um I think I thought The Martian was a fabulous film uh, in fact in 2069 I actually took Mark Watley's route from a silly, a silly Acidalia Planitia, where the base was, down to, was it Schiaparelli Crater, where yep. he had to reach Ares, the Ares rocket. And he yeah. drove on the tractor to the sound of Dancing Queen, you know. Um, yeah. And I put in the 2069 book the route he took. Mm -hmm. And he explained the route he took and what craters he would pass, how he would go over plains and how old it was, because I thought, that was something that people could relate to because we, Mark Watney's already been to Mars. So, um, so I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Mm. Well, that's great. I don't think, I don't think we ever get through um, an episode of Space Door Live without mentioning The Martian. <laughs> wow. It, it, is, it is, I think, you know, very much the best science fiction film for a long time, I thought. And although The Expanse is good. You like the expanse? I don't think I've seen it actually. Netflix on Netflix. That's very. No, I don't think so. Well, I, I just I just noticed the time uh, which has flown by, and I think if we just wrap it up with um, a brief summary of Space Twenty Sixty Nine for the audience, how would you how would you summarize it? Well, I'd say uh, it'll make a good present um, in any respect. Birthday lockdown present buy two you know i wouldn't object if you bought <laughs> more than one but if you read it let me know what you think because it's always nice to get feedback from people who are interested in the subject um it's just basically one person's take on the next 50 years mm. we'll go back to from an enthusiast's point of view in the sense i mean it could be in the next 50 years we don't do anything you know we don't go back to the moon or we go back to the moon and we don't go to mars um, and the politicians nix every project and idea, just like the previous 50 years, and we don't do very much. But mm -hmm. presuming that we do go to the moon, and we build up the experience and the technology to go to Mars, this is what I thought was a realistic way to do it. There are no, I think somebody once put it, there are no unicorns flying silver spaceships. You know, it's all practical stuff. There are, there's no yeah. Elon Musk getting thousands of people to Mars in five or ten years' time, which ain't going to happen. Um, sorry, Elon, you did wonderful things with SpaceX and Falcon 9 and the Dragon capsule, but your starship with its silver skin is not going to take people to Mars. Um, some, I, on a talk I gave, somebody said, well, the big problem with that is the toilet question. If you have hundreds of people on a rocket, you better start designing the toilets now because <laughs> yeah. that's just as important as, as, as the rocket itself. And when you, when you fly across the Atlantic, when we were allowed to, you don't, you'd sure hope that the pilot's got more than two or three years' experience. Um, whereas when Elon talks about 
sending these spaceships to Mars in 2024, 2026. Well, how are the pilots going to get the experience? You know, where are the manuals? Where's the cockpit? Where's the computer architecture? Where are the abort, yeah. you know, the abort um, modes? You know, well, it's, it's a, a billionaire's fantasy um, that might come true in the 2030s, 2040s, but not, not soon. So it's a practical book in the sense that I haven't put in anything that I think could not happen. But it's an optimistic book in the sense that I hope, I really hope, because I was very aware when my kids were growing up that my generation had let them down. I had the Apollo 11 moon landing, which changed my life as a kid. Yeah. None of my kids had that same event, the same kind of thing, um, to say that changed my life. They, they did, it didn't happen. There were events, of course, but nothing like, anything like Apollo 11. And I hope that when people go back to the moon in a few years' time and put foot boots on the moon, and people put a footprint on Mars. I hope that gives the next generations um, their life-changing moment that changes their view of the universe, that just mm -hmm. just changes everything. You know, for, yeah. a kid, for a kid living in Birmingham to look up from the streets at the moon and know that somebody had walked on the moon was fabulous. Fabulous. Yeah. And that's that our subsequent generations after that missed that. And I really hope that future generations get their footprint moment. Thank you for listening to the Space Door podcast. You can tune in live to our Space Talks and be part of the Q&A every Thursday at 7pm on youtube.com forward slash Space Door Live. Whilst you're there, catch up with season one and two of the Space Talks and lots more. Like what you heard today, why not support us by visiting our website, spacedoor.co, and check out how we are bringing space to everyone, everywhere, every day.